still take and shield thee. Thou will find a soul of strength. Welcome to Creekside Church this morning. Trying to get a little energy in the building, get people up, uh, standing. Also reflecting on the fact that Jesus is our friend. Um, what a great truth, and, and we'll be hearing a little bit more about uh, a famous friendship in the Bible today. But along with our friend, you know, how cool is it to think that Jesus is also high and lifted up, mighty and exalted? And so with the thought that he is our friend, listen to these verses from Revelation 4. It says, After this I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, Seated on the throne were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like a crystal. And here's what those, those saints were singing and saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we're going to sing this song. Just a great reflection on how unique and wonderful and mighty is our God. You're seated on the throne of mercy. Your glory shining bright for all to see. Oh God, I will praise you. Magnificent with grace unending, you rescue us with love that never fails. Oh God, I will praise you. Who is like the Lord, strong? Bob comes up to preach. I'm just going to remind you, uh, 4th of July is coming up. If you haven't been here before for 4th of July, the reason uh, this is a great spot is because when the fireworks start up, the Urbandale fireworks, they're just down the street. Uh, this whole lawn over here is a great viewing area. You can see uh, see everything really well uh, right over the rooftops, and uh, it's maybe a little easier to get in and out of and have a spot to park. So uh, if you are interested, uh, we'd love to see you come. Uh, show up at 5.30 for food and uh, fellowship. If you can bring a uh, side and a dessert, great. Um, if you have friends that you'd like to invite uh, to come on out and enjoy some food and uh, games afterward, uh, that would be awesome as well. I think they are still in need of a few 
volunteers. It could just be setting up tables uh, before everyone gets here. Uh, I know Rod probably could uh, appreciate if there's a few others that might want to help uh, flip some burgers on the grill. Um, so if you're interested, uh, see the sign-up sheet. It's, it's next to the American flag on the Welcome Center to try to help draw your eyes to it. So uh, stop by there afterwards, uh, look for a slot maybe where we need some help, and uh, feel free to sign up. So with that, uh, Steve is gone this week. Invite Bob up, and he's going to continue our series through First uh, Samuel. Well, I don't have a good uh, patriotic message this morning about Independence Day. In fact, we're going to talk about the king, so I uh, hope that doesn't disappoint anybody. I don't think it will once we learn a little bit more about this king. Let's just open up with a word of prayer, look to God for his help as we open his word. Father, thank you that you are a good, good God, and thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, your anointed one, your Messiah, the Christ, our King, and thank you this morning that as we open up your word, we can rely on your spirit to open your word up to us. I just pray for hearts that would be receptive. Just pray that I would speak clearly as I should and pray that your spirit would work in each one of our hearts, starting with mine. And just pray for your help as we open up your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Good morning again. I'm going to start out, and I guess I didn't bring the, the bulletin insert up with me, but there's a box in there. And if uh, you could bring that up, Chad. It didn't print out the way I thought because I didn't send it in the right way. So what this is all about is I personally have, in, in more recent years, struggled a little bit in talking about stories in the Bible because in my history, I've seen and heard Bible stories just taken and run with them, like different details of the story made to mean certain doctrines that may or may not be scriptural, some harmful some, you know, not hurtful, and they do agree with the rest of the Bible, but not necessarily what the story seems to have been there for. So I had to kind of get comfortable with that, and I will say that uh, since Pastor Steve came, he has introduced me to some ways of approaching stories in the Bible. So I thought today, since I'm having to do this, that I would initially start you out with uh, telling you kind of how I have recently been taught to approach stories in the Bible. Maybe it'll be useful to you. Maybe it won't, but at least maybe it'll be helpful for you to know where did Bob come up with that and uh, may or may not give you any confidence. But there's things about stories that we're familiar with as a, a plot. So a plot means you, you have a setting at the beginning. There's some tension that builds throughout, and then it, it has this climax and there's this conflict and then there's a resolution and kind of the tension and things maybe settle down. And then you have a whole new setting. Things have changed. So we can use that in Bible stories, I think, to say, what was the approach to this conflict resolution? What, what are the forces that are opposed to each other here? And how did that get resolved? And we can look at the ending state and the beginning state and say, are we better or are we worse? If it's better, then maybe this is a good approach we should adopt. So that's one one thing that is helpful in looking at a story to me in the Bible to determine why God put it there. I'll just say, as a side note, some of the stories 
Well, the stories in the Bible are very well written, and so they contain some details that you might say, well, why is that detail there? And I'm not going to say you shouldn't uh, try to figure that out, but sometimes the details are there perhaps to make the story better because God's a good story writer, and it helps us stay engaged, and He understands our need for attention. So, a plot. We can also learn a lot by looking at the characters in the Bible story. You know, what, what's their agenda? What is their behavior? What is the outcome of what they're doing? Is this somebody that I want to use as an example? Or somebody that I should use as an example in a negative way? I've, you've probably all heard that said, everybody is an example. Some are examples of what to do and some are examples of what not to do. And human nature being what it is, we're probably all a mixed bag, right? And so we see that in the Bible stories. Then this third thing is the melody line of the book. And I didn't come up with that myself, but I think it's pretty cool. And so it's a reference to music, and I'm not a music expert either, so hopefully I'm right here. But there, on a song, there's a tune, and that tune is the melody. And usually if you're hearing multiple people singing here, somebody is following the melody. And that's the main line of the song. But then there's other voices that come in, and they have a harmony. And if you look at sheet music, you'll see these dots on these lines that tell you the melody and the harmony. And if you're smart, you can pick out, I think, you can pick out which one is the melody. But the other ones are in support of the melody. Okay? If they weren't in support of it, the song would not sound good. So, the melody line of a book of the Bible is what's the main purpose that we have this book for? And so if, if we can come to some understanding of that, then we might have a better chance of making a good interpretation of this story that we find in this book of the Bible, which we find in the Bible overall. Because it all agrees, it really does. And sometimes there might be something that we don't think agrees but maybe it's a, it's a harmony note, or maybe it's a, something, uh, a minor note, or something like that, that maybe we weren't expecting, but it adds to the melody. So, understanding the melody line is helpful and valuable, and just a side note on that, too. Some, you know, usually, I don't preach on a regular basis, but when I come in, I'm usually coming in in the middle of a book, and so I try to scan through it. If it's short enough, I'll read the whole thing. If it's not, my Bible has little headings over sections so I can kind of catch up with the story. Um, and then if I don't feel like I've got the big picture of that book, then I might Google it. And then when I've done all that, usually then I go back and look in, at the sermon series title, and I find that Pastor Steve has encapsulated the melody line in the sermon series title. So I believe this series is called Behold Your King, and I think we'll see that this story fits in well with that. And finally, there's the context and cross-reference. So what happened before this story? Where are we at in the Bible? Did we know about Jesus yet? Do we know how God is going to save people yet? Do we know about his redemption plan? So there may be, if, if we haven't hit that point yet, there may be some things that we need to know the end of the story before we understand this story. So let's go looking for that. How does this relate to Jesus? Um, 
and then we can look at cross-references. And again, you know, I find this middle column in my Bible has references from the verses I'm reading to other verses in the Bible, and sometimes that kind of shines a light on what I'm trying to read in this story. So with all that, I feel a little bit more confident in reading Bible stories and my effort to understand them. So that's all I'm going to say about that, but hopefully, you know, we're going to kind of go backwards in those order of things in the rest of our talk about these two chapters, and hopefully you'll be able to see some alignment there, otherwise I've failed. Well, it doesn't matter, I guess, does it? Uh, so let's look at this next slide. There's a verse I want to start out with, and I think this is a significant verse for the whole Bible. So if you want to know what is the whole Bible about, I think this is one of the verses that are in the Bible that kind of tell us what the whole Bible is about. It says in Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 10, that God in Christ was making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this gives you the big picture of God's plan for all of time, from creation to Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation. God's plan, he's working to unite everything together in Christ. And that's why when we read different places in the Bible, it's good to, to just ask ourselves, where do, where do I see Christ in this? And how is this leading to Christ? It's one of the things that I, I love about the Bible, and as I read the Bible, I see these themes throughout the Bible. One of them we mentioned this morning in the first service is the blood. So Adam and Eve sinned, and they realized they were naked, so God killed an animal for them to cover their shame. Well, that started a theme right there in the Garden of Eden, and you see that again, you know, in Exodus and the Passover. They kill a lamb to redeem them out of Egypt, and they go out, and God sets up these sacrifices and he says the firstborn are going to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. The whole nation was redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And so these sacrifices are set up. But where do they end up? They end up with Jesus, the lamb of God, the one in, to whom all things are going to be united in the end. So all of these themes, they point forward to Christ. And so let's uh, take a look about, at another theme in the scriptures. So this next slide here will um, kind of give us a, a theme, I think, that specifically relates to the books of Samuel. So, the, the anointed. And in the Hebrew, which the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, there's a word, and I'm just going to say it. I'm not going to say it in Hebrew, I don't think, but it, it's masia. And it gets translated primarily in our English Bible as Messiah. You recognize that, right? the Messiah, and the meaning of it is anointed. Then when we get to the New Testament, that's written in Greek. And so there's a Greek word, Christos. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's translated Christ, and it's really a title. It means the anointed. So as we read through the Old Testament, and we see like the anointed in all capitals, and we see Messiah, and there may be some other English translations of that, but it's, it's talking about Christ. It's pointing ahead to Christ, and he's the promised Messiah. And then when he comes, as we'll see, he's introduced as Messiah. 
And so we are going to be reading about David and Saul, both of whom were anointed. But Saul's anointment is expired and David's is growing. So we're going to be looking at a period of time in history where there's two kings in one kingdom. And that creates a problem, doesn't it? I mean, we, we, we know just instinctively that you can't have two kings in one kingdom and everything is going to be perfect. So let's take a look here at the next slide and talk about Samuel, the books of Samuel specifically, and why I think that this is the, the overarching theme, besides the fact that Pastor Steve gave that as the sermon series title. We start right out in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and I, I guess I want to step back too because I want to, and we are going to get to reading these chapters, so uh, hold on. This is all the introduction, which is the longest part here this morning, so uh, don't get too worried about that. But David is God's anointed. Saul is the king whose anointment is expired, and his kingdom is fading, and David's is emerging. So I found it intriguing. I, I searched on David, his name in the Bible. The name David occurs 1,135 times in Bible. 1,135 times. Now, I would, I would be open to somebody that wants to go through and count them and give me an adjustment or a clarification, but that's a lot, especially considering Jesus' name is mentioned 975 times in the Bible. And the other name that I thought that might be up there was Moses. His name is mentioned 846 times in the Bible. And even Abraham is mentioned less than those three. So David is a pretty significant character in the Word of God. And I don't think it's just because he was a pretty cool king that had a very interesting story. I think it's because he's a foreshadow of God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's Christ. And so let's take a look then at, at 1 Samuel chapter 2, the, towards the beginning. And Hannah here is the one that is the mother of Samuel, who is the prophet that anointed David. And she's giving thanks to God for this son that he gave her. And part of her, her praise is, says, the adversaries of the Lord, or Yahweh, shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord, or Yahweh, will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Well, at this time in Israel, there was no king. There were just different people that rose to preeminence when there was a need for a battle, and they would lead in the charge, and then people would kind of follow them for a while. There was no king. But Hannah is thanking God for his anointed one and for his king. And I think this might be the first time where the Messiah, the anointed one, is predicted in the Bible to be a king. And so this mother in Israel who prayed for a son, got a son, gave the son back to God, she sings this in praise of the Lord that he has a king coming that will reign and judge the enemies. Then if we go to uh, the end of the books of Samuel, and the two books of Samuel kind of are one book in two volumes but David, in his last words, he says, Great salvation Yahweh brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, 
to David and his offspring forever. So there's that forever word that goes beyond David's life. So you see here, he's not just talking about himself. He's not just talking about his son Solomon who took the throne after him, but he's talking about an offspring forever. And so we get this foreshadow in Samuel that something's coming. And then more details in the middle of the book if we want to look at Samuel 7. And this is what is referred to as sometimes the Davidic covenant or the covenant that God made with David. There's some very significant covenants in the Old Testament that are important to understand as much as we can. And this is one of them, this covenant to David. And he says, this is uh, Jehovah, Yahweh speaking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. So he's saying there's going to be a physical lineage from you, David, that I'm going to raise up and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And so up till that point, we're thinking this is Solomon because this chapter says Solomon's going to build a temple. And we would be right in thinking it's Solomon. But then we get to this word, his kingdom forever. And no human being lives forever as king in the context of what people experience here on earth. And so there's this promise coming. It says, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Well, now we're kind of coming back to Solomon because it says when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. And we know that Jesus did not commit iniquity. Jesus did not sin. He was not punished for his sin, but rather for ours. And so God says, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of, sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So Jehovah Yahweh is saying to David, you're my anointed one. You are going to have a, a constant bloodline, physical, genealogical bloodline from you to my anointed one who's going to live forever. So this is kind of the central theme, I believe, of, of the books of Samuel is that God has an anointed one coming, and David is the foreshadow of that. And I believe that's why we see David mentioned so much in the Bible, because he's a foreshadow of Christ. And the things that we see, many of the things that we see in his life are characteristic of our Savior, our Messiah, our Christ, Jesus. And so uh, then when we get to Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament, what's it say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So when Jesus is introduced in the New Testament, he's introduced as the son of David. So now this lineage is complete. It's fulfilled. Jesus is here. And we have the privilege of knowing that today because of the word of God and because of faithful servants of God who have passed that on to us. We have our anointed one. We have our savior. We have our king, the son in his humanity, the son of David, in his divinity, the son of God our Savior, one that can live forever. And by his work 
on the cross and his resurrection, we can live forever. So these prophecies given to David about a king forever are direct references to the Messiah, to the Christ, to Jesus. And so we see that throughout the Bible. And I don't know, Chad, did I put Revelation 22 in there as well? Here's one of the last verses in the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So here's Jesus at the close of the Bible saying, I'm the one that established David. I'm the fulfillment of David's covenant. I'm the one that you're looking for. And my throne is established forever. But now we're kind of in this time, just like in this story, and we'll read it um, shortly, where Jesus is on the throne in heaven. But there's other people, other forces, other, other things that want to rule our life, much like Saul was wanting to rule the kingdom of Israel, even though his kingdom had been declared over by God. And so we, we live in a time kind of like this story that we're going to read, where Jesus is here wanting to deliver and save and rule in our lives if we'll let him through love. But there's other things motivated by Satan, our enemy, that seek control of our lives, whether it's our own desires inside our heart, whether it's the, the pressures of the world around us, whether it's, you know, the the things that look good, the things that feel good, the things that boost us up, give us pride in our own selves. Those things all come against us, but they all have the character of King Saul. And God has done recognizing that. And he's given us a new king. So we will see this morning, we're going to focus on this story as a foreshadowing of Jesus for all of those reasons. And I am going to read it. It is two chapters, and it's going to take a little while. I would encourage you not to be like me. Sometimes, often, I just have this subconscious thought in my mind, okay, we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse. So I'm just going to kind of sit back and half listen. But we're not going to go back and go through this verse by verse. So I would encourage you to sit forward and full listen, even though it's long, and maybe I don't have the most engaging storytelling abilities, but God does. So let's read 1 Samuel 18 and 19. And remembering here that it's two weeks ago we talked about David and Goliath. So David has just killed Goliath, and that's the immediate context of this story. Goliath is dead. David is the victor. Saul has called David and, and kind of interviewed him, interrogated him a little bit to see what his family background is. And so, verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, who is David's son, or Saul's son, sorry, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, took David that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. 
so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan and Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Moholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And this is kind of the third time, really, because as he won the victory over Goliath, he was supposed to become the king's son-in-law. So it says in verse 22, Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you. And all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies." Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants, 
that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before, and there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. So that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you don't escape with your life tonight... Tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with his clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him in the bed to me, and I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're in, Ramah, in Nioth in Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? So again, we're seeing this separation between Saul and David because of Saul's sin. And we have two kings, right, in this one kingdom. One is God's anointed one, David. And then we have the anti-anointed one, Saul. So Saul recognizes that the Lord has departed from him 
and he's gone to David. And so you could say the, the writing is on the wall and Saul is afraid of David because he knows what this means for his kingdom. As David ascends and prospers, Saul is diminishing. And so let's just take a, a little bit of a look here at these two kings. First of all, we'll look at God's anointed king, David, and some of the, a few of the things that we saw in this story about him. First of all, he's victorious. So he's won the battle against Goliath in a, in a one-on-one duel, if you will. But he's also going in and out in battle against the Philistines and having more success than any other armies of Saul. And then Saul uses that to try to get David killed in battle. And he, he sets him up in this scenario where he's supposed to go get the price of being the king's son-in-law, which he's already paid. But Saul wants him to do it again. And he does it again, and it's, it's kind of a, you know, not very appealing way that, that Saul asked for this to be done, but David does it. And not only does he do it, but he doubles it. So I don't know at what point David decided, I'm not just going to get 100 Philistines, I'm going to get 200, and he does it in the deadline. Yeah, we, we love that when somebody exceeds our expectations and they do it before the deadline, Right? doesn't happen very often, but it happened, and it didn't make Saul happy, did it? But David himself was victorious, just as our anointed one, our Christ, our Messiah is victorious. He went to the cross. He was made sin for us. He shed his blood. He died. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again, victorious victorious for us. He fought our battles for us, and he won our battles for us, and we can follow him in love as we're going to see these other characters following David in love. Second, he was a waiting king. So as uh, the waiting king, David is also a picture of our Savior. And so one of the things we saw with Saul is his, I think it was his second battle that he went out to. He was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and make an offering. Well, he got tired of waiting, and he went ahead and did the offering. And that was the first step in God taking the kingdom away from him because he wouldn't wait. Well, David is now anointed. He's victorious militarily. He's, he's attached. People's hearts are getting attached to him. They're loving him. And you could say, well, David, this is the time. Make your move. You've got public opinion on your side. You've got military strength. The Lord is with you. God has made this promise to you. But David waits. And the next several chapters we're going to see he continues to wait. And in Psalm 110, which I don't know if this is written by David, but there's this quote. says, the Lord, or Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This was written by David, sorry. (laughs) And then that very psalm is quoted at least four times in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. Because Jesus is seated at God's right hand. We read that multiple places in the New Testament. Right now, today, he's seated at God's right hand. And he's the king of all who decide to be part of his kingdom, part of the kingdom of God. But in this world... We're not seeing that. Just like David, he had to flee for his life, and he was uh, 
not sitting on the throne visibly, but he was God's anointed, just like Jesus is today. And so then the next thing is that he is preserved by God's sovereignty through many means. I mean, his own elusiveness. We saw he, he slipped out when Saul hurled a spear or a javelin. Um, he is preserved by his overcoming victories. He was supposed to get killed by the Philistines. Instead, he killed the Philistines. Jonathan's defense, you know, Alan mentioned this famous friendship between Jonathan and David, where Jonathan takes everything that identifies him as the heir to the throne and gives it to David and loves David and commits himself, we'll see later, to serving David. Jonathan loved David, and he publicly defended David, and he spoke to his own father who was going to kill David in defense of him. And he changed Saul's mind for, for a brief period of time, didn't he? And, and Saul made an oath because of Jonathan's pledged allegiance and love for David. And then there was Michal, the, son, the daughter of Saul who became David's wife. She hid him and got him an opportunity to escape through her own deception. Uh, we will, as we go through Samuel, if we were to read through the whole books, we would see at some point there's a disconnect between Michal and David, where she's not worshiping the same God David is. And so that ends up with her being barren, and she never has children. So she has this kind of partway love, right? It goes a certain distance, probably an admiration for David's military strength and his popularity and his musical ability and you know, I think David is kind of one of those people. I've, I've known a few of them in my life that, you know, you think, oh, they're really smart. They know math really well. And then next thing you find out, oh, they can play the piano. Oh, well, they just picked up the guitar. They can play that. Oh, they can draw pictures. They can speak. They can do all these things. I think David was one of those people. And so he was in a special place of leadership, ordained and anointed by God. And so no doubt that was attractive to many people who weren't necessarily attracted to Yahweh, David's God. And then in the end of our story that we just read, God's Spirit directly comes in and protects David. I mean, how, how incredible is that power on David's behalf? Saul sends messengers, soldiers, people going with one purpose. We're going to go get David and bring him back. And what's God do? He says, well, I'll just put my spirit on him, make him prophesy, you know, just like a 180 from what they were really up to. And so finally, Saul's like, what's up with this? I'm going to just have to, you know, if you can't get a job done right, you do it yourself, Saul says, and I'm going to go do this myself. He walks into the presence of Samuel and David, the Spirit of God comes on him, and now he's prophesying. And he's taking his clothes off, and he's prophesying, and the, the rumor spreads throughout the kingdom that this has happened to Saul. So God's direct intervention comes in on behalf of, G of David and Jesus. That was going to be the second name I said, because we see that in the stories of Jesus that we get in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how over and over again, until it was Jesus' time to be killed, you know, he, he eluded those who were trying to kill him. People stood up for him who didn't necessarily you know, make a public stand with him. Some did make a public stand with him and defend him in the most difficult of circumstances, like Nicodemus, for example. 
And so this foreshadowing of Christ we see in David because he is God's anointed and he is going to reign. He is going to sit on that throne and Jesus is going to sit on that throne too. And so nothing will happen to deter that. So then let's take a brief look at Saul, the anti-anointed one, or we could say the antichrist, really, if we translate it to um, New Testament Greek language. And so Saul was rejected in chapter 15. And so now he's fearful of anyone whom the Lord is with. Okay, there's, there's no pretension here that he's on the Lord's side. He is now clearly and obviously exposed for being against Jehovah, Yahweh. And he's a taker. We saw that in chapter 14, and we saw it here at the beginning of our chapter, you know, it said in chapter 14, any, anybody that Saul set, saw that was mighty or had a talent, he took him for himself. And here we say David, he saw David's victory and he said, you're coming with me and you're not going back and forth to your parents' house anymore. You're mine. And so we see a possessiveness in Saul. Uh, we see that he's a promise breaker. He had made a covenant that he was going to give his daughter to David, that he was going to give specifically Merab to David, and he didn't keep his word. And so then we see that he swears that David is not going to die, and then he turns around and starts trying to kill him again. He's a promise breaker. And ultimately, he's powerless. So very, you could say, very nasty person. Um, reminds us of the devil himself out to devour whoever he can, out to take everything for himself, not looking out for the good of anyone. But Jesus has defeated him, and he's powerless. And it says, we can resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And so here is Saul, ultimately trying to flex his muscle against David. The Spirit of God overtakes him, and he's powerless. So these are the anointed one, and the anti-anointed one. So what do we do when there's a multiple cho choice situation like we face in our daily lives for who's going to be the ruler over my life? Who is in charge in this world? What do we do? Well, I think we have at least four good examples in this chapter of the choosers. Um, and there's others here as well, but I just want to focus briefly on these. So first of all, we have Saul, and he just outright rejects and tries to destroy David. Then there's Jonathan, and he takes all that he has, all of his rights, and in love devotes himself to David. And, you know, Saul died in the battlefield, and his offspring were killed later. Jonathan died in the battlefield but his son was the only one that had a place at the king's table after he died. So Jonathan, in his love for David and the covenant he made with David and David's faithfulness to that covenant, Jonathan had a future beyond his own life. And that's what we have today offered by Christ. Through love and devotion and service of Jesus, we have eternal life. It's not through that that we have eternal life, but 
through our response to Jesus' work, we have eternal life, and our heart can go out to him in love just as Jonathan's did. Merab was seems seemingly very indifferent to David, and so the only thing we hear about her later is her sons are killed because there had to be an atonement for Saul's sin. No offspring, no fruitfulness from her. Michal loves David, but it's kind of a superficial love. It doesn't go deep to loving the same God and worshiping the same God. It's just an attraction to him that doesn't hold up when the chips are down later. And she dies a barren woman. She has no fruitfulness beyond that. And so this reminded me of the, and we're not going to go there really, but in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a, a parable, and you can go read it, about people who, receive, who hear the word of the kingdom, the word of God, and how do they respond to it. And there's various levels of response, all the way from like Saul responded to David to like Jonathan. And that response to the word of the kingdom dictates their fruitfulness. And it does for us. How we respond to Christ will say what is there left after our life. It will also say what does our life look like today because if Jesus is our king, that means we are obeying him and there will be um, visible consequences of that. So it leaves me this question, which describes me and which describes you? All of these people are talked about that are following David are following him because they love him. Any measure in which they followed David, I don't know if you noticed that, but it says all Judah and Israel loved him. Jonathan loved him. Michal loved him. Saul's servants loved him. There was a constraining love about David because he was working salvation for the nation of Israel and defeating their enemies. And so people loved him and followed him out of love. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. Let's bring up um, first, uh, Psalm 116.1, where it says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. We need help. We need salvation. The Lord has brought salvation, and our hearts can respond in love to him. And then 1 Peter 8 says, Though we have not seen Jesus you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and mind. Love for our Savior is what's called for. And that's the reaction that goes out after David, and that's the reaction that goes out after Jesus, after the Lord. Even though we haven't seen him, we know by faith his work for us. And so it says we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, that soul that's going to live beyond this physical body that we have is going to be preserved through faith in Jesus. So, how have you responded to Jesus? Have you followed his call of love that says, follow me, come to me, all you that are, 
are laboring and are burdened down with burdens, and I will give you rest? Have you looked at his work for you on the cross, his saving work for you, and responded by faith, putting your trust in Jesus and in love, submitting yourself to his kingship? That's what we're called to. And I'm going to close here with this next scripture. And this is a good introduction too to communion. We're going to take the bread and the juice as a reminder of Jesus' body and blood given for us. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Isn't David a good foreshadowing of Jesus? Taking that humble place, going about working victory for the people, even those that rejected him. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Remember, he came according to David's lineage in his manhood. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, as we go through Samuel, we're going to see David sitting on the throne. One day, the whole world is going to see Jesus sitting on the throne. Every knee in this room, every knee in this world Everybody that has ever lived, demons, human beings, whatever, is going to bow and confess Jesus as Lord. What a privilege this morning that we still have the opportunity to confess him as Lord and bow our knee to him in worship so that we can share in his glory. And this isn't just an isolated text. We know that we're going to share in his glory if we share in his sufferings in this time of his rejection. So I just implore you this morning, if you haven't pursued Jesus, if you haven't confessed him as Lord, bowed your knee and acknowledged that he has the right to authority over you, that you do that this morning and then come with us and take this communion, which is instituted for those who have put their trust in Jesus, who have submitted to him as their Lord and King, who believe that the work that he did on the cross as represented in the his blood and body reflected in the bread and the juice that that was for them and then worship him he's exalted god has exalted him highly well, let's join god in exalting him this morning in the remembrance of his death for us and his victory over sin and hell and the grave over satan for us Let's give thanks now for that bread and that juice. Lord Jesus, this morning as we consider in this bread and this juice your work of deliverance and salvation, our hearts are grateful and we give thanks. May each one of us take this knowing that your body and your blood are given for us. Thank you for your servant David who foreshadowed you so well and for the exposition of your word of David's life and his heart and his work of salvation and of the way that we can follow Christ 
in our own lives. And I just pray that that would mark each one of us, that we would acknowledge your saving work for us, the victory you've won against our enemies, that we would submit our lives to your authority and enjoy and rejoicing see the outcome of our faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name.